Welcome to the JACCP podcast. My name is Jerry Bauman, and I'm the editor of the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today, we're talking with Drs. Bruce Lambert and Gordon Schiff. They published an important review in the September 2022 issue of JACCP titled Redondavat, Medication Safety and the Profession of Pharmacy, Steps to Improve Safety and Ensure Justice. Dr. Lambert is a professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. And among other things, his research focuses on health communication, drug name confusion, and patient medication safety. Dr. Schiff is a general internist and quality and safety director for the Harvard Medical School Center for Primary Care. He is associate director of Brigham and Women Center for Patient Safety Research and Practice and Associate Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Bruce and Gordy, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Jerry. It's good to talk with you. Glad to be here. So to begin, the case of Redonda Vaught, who's a nurse, and the tragic death of patient Charlene Murphy received national press and attention from both the lay community and that of the healthcare community. So to begin, could you review what happened in this case? Yeah, yeah. So Charlene Murphy was a patient at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She was being evaluated for some neurological symptoms. They thought she might have had a, a brain tumor. So she had been in the hospital for a couple of days when her neurologist ordered a full body PET scan. So they send her down to radiology. And while she's in radiology waiting, and they're injecting the dye into her, and the radiology tech is explaining what's going to happen, and Redondavat expresses some anxiety about claustrophobia. So uh, ultimately, her, her doctor orders midazolam, Versed, to relax her so she's not too claustrophobic or anxious when she goes into the PET scanner. Or it's important to note that the, that the physician ordered Versed not midazolam. And Versed is a brand name for midazolam that's no longer in use and hasn't been for about 10 years. Nevertheless, it's familiarly known as Versed, and that's what the doctor ordered. So the order gets to the floor, the neurology floor where the patient had been, and the, the, the patient's nurse was busy with something else. Not surprisingly, the patient's nurse was covering. So this is when the complexities start to come in. The patient's nurse was covering for another nurse, covering another nurse's patient. So she was a little overloaded. So she asked whether someone in radiology could administer the midazolam or Versed. But the radiology nurse said she was, he or she, I don't recall, wasn't comfortable administering the midazolam because the patient would need to be monitored, et cetera. So the radiology nurse said, no, thank you. I don't want to do it and kind of turfed it back to the neurology floor. Well, the primary nurse was too busy, so she asked a floating helper nurse to do it. This was Redonda Vaught. She was floating that day. She was actually supervising a nursing student or a new nurse, I can't recall which one, and she was on her way down to the ED to do a swallowing study on a different patient, but agreed to administer this medication. So she goes to the automated dispensing cabinet on the neurology floor, and it, this is when it gets important and interesting. She enters VE for Versed, and nothing is returned in the automated dispensing cabinet because the ADC was not programmed to search by brand name, only by generic name. So she enters VE and nothing is returned. The dispensing cabinet didn't open. So she enters uh, an override 
and then puts in VE and picks the first drug that came up, which was vecuronium, unfortunately. Uh, and there was an alert that came up. It said, you know, vecuronium should only be used in stat situations and so on. But she did, she, she ignored this alert. The automated dispensing cabinet opened and she took out the vecuronium, which was a powder for reconstitution. But she didn't process the fact that midazolam wasn't a powder for reconstitution. She took out the vecuronium. Uh, she got two syringes so she could reconstitute the the Versed, or what she thought was the Versed, what was the vecuronium. Then she went down to the radiology floor, reconstituted the powder, and administered what was vecuronium instead of Versed, and then left the patient. And then the, the patient was being monitored only via video by a radiology tech. And within 30 minutes, somebody else in radiology noticed that the patient wasn't responding. Uh, they called the code. Uh, and ultimately, the, the patient was resuscitated, but had such a severe brain injury that she didn't survive. So that's those are the basic facts of what happened. She, a patient was incorrectly administered vecuronium instead of Versed due to the sequence of events that I just described. And it was a fatal error. And then she was criminally prosecuted for that error. Right. What made this kind of a, such a national thing is that there was a long sequence of events. Actually, she immediately admitted it. She was completely cooperative. She went to the neurology floor, admitted what, saw the, what she thought was Versed was put in a plastic bag with the syringes to be disposed of. And they realized it was vecuronum. So she immediately admitted it. So this error came to light immediately. The family was told pretty much immediately. The physician was told pretty much immediately. She never hid or uh, was deceitful in any way. And initially there was, a case was brought before the nursing board in, in Tennessee and nothing was done. She was found not to have violated things. She didn't lose her license. And then some months later, I think six or nine months later, someone made a complaint to CMS. And then CMS came to investigate and CMS found all these problems. And then the nursing board reinvestigated. And the second time around, they found that she had committed all these misconduct and they took away her nursing license. And then a local prosecutor got a hold of the case and brought charges against her for um, negligent homicide. She was ultimately convicted of a slightly lesser charge. I can't remember difference, but uh, right now it's, it's escaping me that the legal charge, but she was found guilty and then ultimately sentenced to only probation. Uh, she was not sentenced to prison because of all the mitigating factors. But it, it, you know, it was terrifying for lots of healthcare professionals um, because this person could have faced a long prison sentence. The, the potential prison sentence for this conviction for negligent homicide was very long. And ultimately, the judge showed mercy on her because it was clear she had showed remorse, that there's no intention, that she immediately cooperated, et cetera. So that, those are the basic facts, I think. Yeah. Well, let me comment as much on what Bruce has said, and, and you're hearing from Bruce as what actually, you know, the events which he related. Most of the things that go wrong in the hospital, so I'm a, a general internist. I, I did many years of practicing inpatient. But when these things go wrong, we never get to the bottom of the second story. The details that you heard from Bruce, even today as he relates them, I, I, I've learned something new. There's all these complexities and mitigating circumstances. These are not excuses. These are ways of understanding how all these Swiss cheese holes, how all the different process problems that happen every day in the hospital, all the workarounds. You can imagine many healthcare institutions have what we would call toxic cultures where you would make sure that nobody 
ever found out what happened. The patient had a drug reaction. They died. That was the end of it. That would have been terrible in terms of learning from this and, and preventing this in the future. But uh, that's unfortunately often the case, especially if you make people afraid, if, 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 if fear is driving this rather than learning. So that the richness of the details, which again, speak for themselves about the complexity are really part of, I think, the story that we want to get out and, and help promote a culture where, where people do come forward, where people do feel comfortable digging into the details and, of course, sharing them with the patient uh, in an honest way. So to that end, in, in the paper that, that you published in JCCP, you recommend nine steps for the profession of pharmacy that should be taken in order to maximize patient safety and minimize the risk of criminal prosecution for drug errors. And as an aside, even though this was targeted for clinical pharmacists, because that is the focus of our journal, you know, this could apply to any healthcare profession. But could you briefly review those nine steps that you recommend? So I'll just go over them for people who haven't read it. So the first is advocating for safe practices in your health system. Uh, the second is using the pharmacy professional organizations to educate prosecutors about just culture and system safety. The third, strengthening the focus on at-risk behaviors and the normalization of devi deviance. The next is training a cohort of clinicians to be expert witnesses because we think Redondavod got a very, very poor defense. Most of the system failures that led to this error really weren't brought up in her defense. She got a very sort of superficial defense. The next is embracing communication and resolution programs to tell the truth to patients and families after these errors and, and make adequate resolution, uh, allow clinicians to apologize and so on. The next is to encourage and support conser conservative medication use, to draw attention to production pressures and their impact on patient safety and clinician burnout, to promote proactive surveillance of adverse effects, and to then stand in solidarity with other health professions, especially nurses. So where do you want to take that, Gordy? There's so much to say about each of those. Yeah, exactly. I, I guess the first place I'd like to take it, you know, the listenership of this podcast, I, I assume includes pharmacists who read this journal. We would very much like to have people read what's under the hood of each of those. That's sort of a nice sounding list, these recommendations, but the nuances of how uh, we've written it, we're going to have time just to touch superficially on a few, just a few of these. An another caveat here is that uh, neither Bruce nor I are pharmacists. It's a little immodest for us to be telling pharmacists what they should be doing or learning. I was the director of the clinic at Cook County Hospital, and I realized that the, one of the things I could do most productively to improve safety and efficiency in my clinic was to work in the pharmacy to help interface. With, you know, the, the pharmacist, we used to say the pharmacists were the, all the problems. They made errors. They, didn't nice, they weren't nice to the patients. They never called us when there were drugs or formulary and you go down to the pharmacy and the problem is all the doctors. And so putting, putting this multidisciplinary collaboration together, which this piece does, does represent, even though I did play that role of pharmacy technician and Bruce was the head of pharmacy administration at the University of Illinois in, in his previous job. And that's actually how we began collaborating. So with, with that context in mind, I, I think in, in very broad terms, want to really activate the profession to start thinking critically and, and playing a much more proactive role. I we, we want to so both stand with the pharmacy and pharmacy community on one hand, and we want them to 
to raise their voices collectively. So it, when thinking of these nine steps, I was really trying to think if, unfortunately, we know, Jerry, that fatal medication errors will happen in the future, that that's just the world we live in. Drugs are very dangerous. Patients are very frail. The systems are very um, vulnerable to error. So these errors will happen in the future. So I thought, what can the profession do to both prevent these fatal errors from happening, which is the main thing, and then if they do happen, to put the pharmacist or nurse or whoever makes the fatal error in the best position to defend themselves legitimately, not to defensive in the sense that pharmacists deserve immunity no matter what kind of mistakes they make. So that's why our first thing is, you know, implement interventions. Vanderbilt University Medical Center and many other hospitals and health systems, they really aren't unique, could do much, much more. There, the Institute for Safe Medication Practices, a year before this error occurred, put out a whole bunch of safe practices specifically for paralytic agents like vecuronium. And I went back after this error occurred and searched and vecuronium versed error had occurred in the past. So nothing is really new under the sun. And there were all these safe practices about not putting uh, vecuronium in ADCs, or if so, put it in a locked cabinet in a special overwrap, making it much harder to access. Unfortunately, people need vecuronium in urgent situations. You can't just keep it in the basement hidden, but there's much safer ways to store it and, and allow it to be dispensed, but barcoding, um, all sorts of clinical decision support alerts. There's many, many ways where you could make the system safer. All of that is to be able to say after the next fatal error occurs, we did everything we could and to try to be able to point to all the things that you did. So that's really what the first principle is about. Educating prosecutors. You know, this is sort of a fantasy. I mean, Jerry, I don't know whether the National Pharmacy Associations would do this, but they ought to. They ought to meet with the federal, state, and local prosecutors and talk to them about what kind of behavior should be prosecuted, what sort of behavior really isn't criminal, so that they understand. But the prosecutors are political creatures. They respond to uh, political demands. There was, I'm sure this local prosecutor in, in Nashville thought that his constituents wanted this nurse to be prosecuted as a deterrent. Of course, we don't believe that that's going to work, but there and there are different legal theories of what negligence is in a, in a safety systems perspective, making a mistake without any intention, without any recklessness, we don't think is a crime. But there are, you know, David Marks in this ISMP podcast talked about how there's a legitimate legal principle at stake here where certain kinds of negligence, even completely unintentional, are still criminal. So there has to be a meeting of the minds between pharmacy and, and the legal profession about that. Yeah, I mean, and Bruce, of course, is an expert on communication as well. Even in the early days, there were these Annenberg Errors in Medicine conferences. It was clear we had to educate the press, right? So if, you know, the headlines are screaming, you know, nurse, reckless nurse kills innocent patient. Right. Versus really somebody who could really grapple with these. So it's not just the prosecutors we have to educate. We have to educate the press who in turn are, are going to help educate a public that understands these things. And of course, we need patients to be very much involved in making drugs safer and being vigilant, asking questions before they take the drug, while they're taking the drug, and even after the fact when there's a an adverse event such as this. Yeah, the, the other so, things, I know we have relatively little time, Jerry, so I wanted to yeah, through these, I'll let you ask the next couple of questions. But the, the profession could really take a leading role in like training this cohort of expert witnesses in patient safety and medication safety. So they could deploy them 
in the service of their members when these things happen. Luckily, prosecutions, even for fatal errors, are still very rare. Um, so it does happen, but there needs to be this education. And then, you know, what are the, some of the other things? Embrace this medical liability reform so you can tell the truth to patients and families. And then this thing that Gordy and I have written about, about a ton in the past 10 or 15 years, recognize just how dangerous drugs are. And of course, clinical pharmacists know this already. That's why there's a professional clinical pharmacy in part to safeguard these dangerous substances. But every day and in every moment, you have to take advantage of the opportunity to be conservative about medication use because of just the intrinsic risks of both the substances themselves. So the, the substances are, 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 so many of them are so intrinsically dangerous and high in the, you know, high alert drugs and so on, the anticoagulants and, and paralytics and insulins and opioids, these drugs that just slight errors can cause dramatic consequences. So there's always an opportunity not to use these drugs. And Gordy points out in our article that did this patient really need midazolam? Wasn't there a more conservative option? Could someone have gone and held her hand? Could some, could they have given her oral midazolam? Could they have given her Benadryl? Could they have, you know, there's all these more conservative options than IV Versed or IM or whatever it was. I don't know, injectable Versed. So we think conservatism is so important. And then the stuff about burnout and production pressures. And pharmacists are sort of caught in the middle. We want to recognize this. You know, the doctors are saying this patient needs this drug. It's you know, even with your knowledge of pharmacology, you would question that. But, you know, you call me and question it. I'm going to say, you know, you're bothering me. Don't I'm the doctor. And we have to change that whole culture where we have a patient should be questioning drugs, asking questions, of course, about side effects before and during. So 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 really, it's, it's the physicians who are doing this non-conservative prescribing that has to change and pharmacists help do it. We we, we produced a whole educational program. It's, fr it's free for students at the IHI Open School on conservative prescribing. Yeah, I won't hold it against you that you guys aren't clinical pharmacists. That's <laughs> that's all right. You're you're touching on a subject that is, uh, you know, very important to our profession. And I would note, I don't think there's an oral midazolam, but there are oral uh, other benzodiazepines. It's an oral benzo, fine. Uh, that's all, yeah, that's all, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for correcting me. So, let, let me let's let's br briefly take a couple of, of concepts that you you brought up, and maybe you could elaborate just a bit. Yeah. You know, in in the point number, and I and I agree that you know I want people to read this article because there's a lot of meat in those nine points, and you bring up a lot of interesting concepts of, that I think uh, pharmacists need to consider. But in your point number six, you mentioned that in healthcare. There is a conspiracy of goodwill, yeah. and, and you bring up the concept of conservative prescribing, which you've gone through. Yeah. And I think the point you're getting at is that drugs are dangerous. Well, explain, if you would, this conspiracy yeah, so of goodwill about drugs. So this idea of the conspiracy of goodwill came from our old friend, Charles Medawar, who wrote a book about this in connection with what he thought was the overuse of SSRIs many years ago, probably 20 years ago now. And what he referred to is that Everyone wants the drugs to work. The doctors, the patients, the companies, the regulators, everyone wants medicines to work. Everyone wants medicines to be safe, to be effective. So that's what he refers to as the conspiracy of goodwill. And so no one wants to kind of burst the bubble and say, no, these medicines really don't work that well. Or in the case that we're talking about now, no, these medicines aren't, they're not that safe. They're actually quite dangerous, but nobody wants to talk about how dangerous 
medication use is because people feel like it will make the profession look bad or it will make the industry look bad or it will scare patients and they won't take. I mean, we know insulin and opioids, anticoagulants are among the most dangerous medicines there are, but people need insulins, opioids, and anticoagulants. We can't stop using them and we can't terrify patients so they're afraid to take them. But there has to be a balance which does a better job acknowledging risk. And that's what conservative prescribing is about. I'll let Gordy say more about these ideas. People talk about the incentives of the industry to promote drugs often before there's been adequate testing of safety and enough uh, study and protections put in place. But, it, it, you know, at the doctor end, again, I'm just speaking for myself, we really want to give people hope, you know, instead of telling people these drugs are going to hurt you or you shouldn't try it or they're no good. People are desperate. They come to us and they come because they want me to do something for them. So it's sort of a structurally inherent situation where we're, we, we, we want to try something. Drug A didn't work, so we're going to try drug B. We don't want to turn people away, ignore, seemingly ignore their suffering, but we often are doing more harm than good. And that's, that's what this conspiracy will it needs to be really critically dissected. One of the things we emphasize in this and the other points is that really monitoring patients, we can't even get it always right whether the person should be started on these drugs. Often we we err on the side of starting too many drugs, but monitoring patients, first of all, is the drug really working? Why do we even continue it if it's not helping patients? What kind of side effects are emerging and that we need to really proactively not, well, call me if you have any problems, but uh, really reaching out to people, telling them what to anticipate, what to look for, how to monitor for various side effects. In fact, even the term side effects, I don't like to use. These are effects. There's no such thing as side effects. These are all effects of the drugs. You know, you put a drug in somebody's body, it doesn't just magically go to one organ and not have any impact on other organs. So you also bring up this in your paper, this, this point that deviation from strict rule following in healthcare appears to be routine. Bothered me when I read it. <laughs> I believe it's true, but perhaps you could explain that a bit. Well, it's, it's, it's undeniable. People, I, I made a YouTube video about this, Jerry, and, and many, many commenters were extremely angry that Redondavot ignored the alert. But as you know, Jerry, you know, ignoring clinical decision support alerts is more common than following them. And I cite several studies where a clinical decision support alerts overrides or ignoring them is 90%, 80%, 100%. Gordy did a study. I think it was like renal dosing support or something, Gordy. Yeah. I can't remember. Right. The there was a recent publication, 100% overrides. These are alerts that were very carefully crafted, thought through yeah. by one of my colleagues. It was 100% override rate. And, and we know that all sorts of other workarounds, not barcoding. I, there's a paper that I cited, and I realized that the paper, I didn't give the citation. I just talked about the paper. Paper in the Netherlands, where they looked at several hundred or several thousand administrations, nursing administrations of medication. And in something like 60% of them, there was at least one workaround in the barcoding process. So deviations from the pure strict rule following of correct procedure is the norm. It isn't really the exception. Why does that happen? It's because the, inter the, the software is incompatible. The interfaces are obscure and difficult to work with. There are delays. There are shortages. There are sh there's short staffing. All these things combine 
to where you have health professionals just trying to take care of the patient. The patient's in distress. The physician says that they need the medicine stat. And so the only way to work around all this technology, which often isn't cooperative um, or the shortages or whatever, the short staffing is to do these workarounds. And we're not saying the workarounds aren't unsafe. They're often unsafe. They're often catastrophically unsafe, like they were in this case, but they do happen. And, and, and here's where there's more than individual responsibility. There's organizational responsibility. So this error occurred at Vanderbilt only a, a couple of months, maybe even just a couple of weeks, I can't recall exactly, a short period of time after they implemented a new electronic medical record where there had been delays in verification. In this case, there wasn't a long de verification delay to get this order verified. But th there's a broader context. The, the health system did not implement all these safe practices for the safe storage and dispensing of uh, paralytic drugs. It's in this context that we have to think about these deviations, but we tend to, especially in the aftermath of a bad error, we tend to individualize everything and then pathologize everything. And I saw this on the commenters to my YouTube video, but they were just so angry. They thought the fact that she blew by this alert, where it's when she took out the vecuronium and said, you know, this should only be used if there's a stat order, but there wasn't a stat order. She took it anyway. So they thought that was proof positive of her absolute negligence that she, or that there was an override at all, that she overrode the ADC to get in it after the first order didn't uh, respond. But it, it, the, the CMS documented this patient in his brief hospital stay prior to the fatal error had had 20 other medication orders that were accomplished via override. So override just isn't rare at all, and neither are all these other deviations. So we have to realize that that these deviations occur all the time and the organizations are responsible for either fixing the systems that cause so many deviations or for trying to make the system resilient in the face of these inevitable deviations. I'd like to introduce a word that both overlaps and is a little different than deviations, which is frustrations. And if you watch or talk to people working on the front lines, their lives are filled with all these frustrations, you try to enter a drug and it won't come up. You try to reach a, a doctor to confirm an order and they're, they're not reachable. And I would argue that the things that make people very frustrated and leading to burnout and people are quitting are, are the very things that are making risk safety risk. So it leads to workarounds. It leads to people, you know, cutting corners, not doing what they want, putting in manual prescriptions, you know, that that uh, you can't get in through the computer, taking extra time. These extra frustrations take time, so you can't pay attention to uh, the tasks at hand. You get interrupted, getting called that something didn't go right. So all the frustrations that people are having, which people can say, well, that's just the fact of life and it's tough it out. You know, that's, that's, your, that's what you're getting paid for, for your eight-hour day or your 10-hour day. Gordon, I want to add something else about the public perception of this. I think, Jerry, that clinicians and big organizations, the, the chain pharmacies, the big health systems, the professional associations, and the clinicians themselves don't necessarily want to air this. They think it's airing dirty laundry. They don't want to air this dirty laundry. But if the public doesn't understand how hard it is to practice safely under all these constraints, then they will be unsympathetic 
when these errors occur. And that's exactly what happened in the Vought case. A lot of the public was unsympathetic. And when you, after the fact, when you try to describe all the constraints that she was under and all the suboptimal conditions in the, in the organization and so on, there was very little sympathy. It seemed like pure defensiveness or excuse making. So that's why now, not, not when we're in the aftermath of a fatal error, but now we have to talk about what the working conditions are like and how we have, to, and this is something that's be very hard for the professions to admit, which is it is not possible to practice completely safely under these circumstances. So I think in the mat, because of time, we're going to have to wrap up. So yeah. I do want to thank both of you for contributing this important paper. And, and as I mentioned before, I think it's really important that uh, really all pharmacists read it. And, and I hope a broad array of other healthcare practitioners. And I'd also like to say, uh, I think for the, the listeners can see that I worked with both of these individuals in the past and really yeah. enjoyed it. Uh, they're so passionate about their important work. So thank you very much, Bruce and Gordy. Yeah, I'd like to add with that last point of pharmacists standing in solidarity with nurses. I, I think it, it's something we should really think of the power of, of really the, the trust, the credibility, the, the roles, the very essential interlocking roles of nurses and pharmacists and drug administration and education about medications uh, and recognizing errors uh, in workflow. It, it's very powerful and, and it's really, uh, I think, could be very catalytic. We would be remiss if we didn't offer our condolences to the family of Charlene Murphy and her friends for her tragic and, and untimely death under these circumstances. And, and, and finally, a word of hope for the clinicians who might be listening and think it's a very difficult and maybe hopeless situation. It's not at all hopeless. These are concrete actions that could be taken right now to both make care safer and to ensure that if a bad outcome happens, there'll be a more just resolution to it. So thanks again, Jerry.